is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our first job series, where we hear about and from famous and ordinary folks about their very first job and what it's meant for their life. And we'd love to hear about your first job story. Give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information, and we'll get you to help you record it. Once again, our number is 844-627-8255. Today, Joey Cortez brings us this first job story. I recently got together with this guy. When that picture came out, people thought it was kind of funny and cute. The very first employee of Mitt Romney's Bain Capital. And what's this iconic picture he's talking about? For those of you who saw the picture that uh, when Mitt was running for president had guys with $20 bills in their mouths hamming it up after we raised our first fund, that, uh, that picture seemed like a good idea at the time. I, I don't think Mitt thought it was such a good idea in 2012 when it uh, got played all over the internet, you know, sort of character, trying to characterize him as uh, you know, a rich guy flaunting his wealth. At the time, none of us had any money, and I think, uh, I think we had to all borrow the $20 bills and stick them in our mouth so that we, uh, we could ham it up. That's Jeff Renner, now the co-CEO of Audex Group, a $10 billion investment firm. But as he said, he didn't start there. Here is where he started. I would spend my summers down in uh, Beach Haven, New Jersey on Long Beach Island. And that was really where I got my first sort of entrepreneurial or business experience. I was, uh, uh, the first summer we were down there, I became enamored with the game of miniature golf and there was some con- uh, construction going on at the house and so I would take the pipes and the boards and built my own little miniature golf course in the front yard and tried to get the neighborhood kids to come by and spend a nickel to play around a miniature golf. As an eight-year-old, I'm 23, and I haven't owned my own car, let alone my own business. Let's take a listen to Jeff to hear what he learned from his first job. Well, so it's, you know, it's funny, you, you, uh, you get me thinking about it, but you have to attract customers, uh, you have to manage costs. I was able to keep my costs down, I was able to get most of the supplies to build the course for free. The only thing I had to pay for was for the, the putter, uh, the putters and the, and the golf balls that I, uh, I bought. But uh, I was able to manage my, my costs below my revenue. A couple years later, I, I uh, became a paper boy for the Philadelphia Bulletin, which I would take on summer paper boys. So I, uh, I had to build my own route. There was no established set of customers. I was 11 years old, and uh, school it was the day school got out. My mother picked me up. We drove down to the shore. And I had met with the guy who was the distributor, and he said he was going to have 20 papers dropped off. And uh, basically, they were my papers, and it was on me to figure out how to sell them. And so uh, I got out of school at noon. We got to the shore about 2.30 and 4 o'clock. This truck comes by and drops a stack of papers, and I had to figure out how to go sell them. So I spent the rest of that afternoon knocking on doors in the neighborhood, persuading people to become subscribers to the, the bulletin. I can't remember how many I got that first day. I think I got a good chunk of the, the 20 to subscribe, and the rest I went down to the corner grocery store and sold out in front until I, I sold them all because I was told, you know, I was going to get charged for the, the used papers I turned back in. And now here's a lesson that Jeff learned on his second job, a lesson you might not expect. 
timing. The best time to collect was Friday nights um, because the houses all turned over on Saturday. So I learned the hard way, uh, I think, that first summer that, you know, if I waited till Saturday, some of my subscribers had left town. And the last thing they were thinking about as they were packing up their house was, you know, make sure the paper boy got paid. So I, uh, <clears throat> I figured Friday night was a good time. The other thing that was good about Friday nights is the husbands. This was, you know, back in the 19, uh, late 1960s. So the husbands, you know, who were at that time the, the breadwinners and, the, you know, the, the wives were down, you know, in, in, they, they would tend to stay down during the week and the husbands would come down on Friday night. They, uh, <clears throat> they were better tippers than the the moms because usually what they would do is they give the their wives you know a fixed budget for the week and uh, and so they were a little more frugal with stretching their dollars whereas the husbands would come down and they uh, especially after they had a cocktail or two you know they'd see the young paper boy and sort of admire the hustle and the you know entrepreneurship and uh, you know they tended to give bigger tips so I always reserve my Friday nights to go around and collect. Most of the other kids his age weren't working like that, which was something that he struggled with. I was so different than so many of the other kids. You know, most of the kids didn't have a, either the desire to work. You know, everyone wanted money, but um, I didn't grow up in a wealthy family. And Beach Haven was, uh, it was a very middle-class beach community. It was not a high-end wealthy community where kids had big allowances. If I wanted something, I had to basically earn the money to to get it and so I'd say the hardest part was you know working when the other kids would be playing. But Jeff even as a young boy kept the big picture in mind. I I realized you know that if I earned the money I could spend it on the things I wanted and so I really learned at an early age that if you work hard and you give you provide a value proposition you can generate something that then in turn enables you to do what you want to do. And Jeff He worked his way through Stanford Law School, at times holding down four jobs while he was a student. With all these different jobs, I actually made, um, you know, twice as much money my last year in law school as my dad had ever earned in his career. Um, And it was one of those, again, you know, just powerful awarenesses that, you know, if you really work hard, you really focus, you know, you, you know, this, this is a benefit of our system, you can, you know, you can reap the rewards from what you sow. Now, we mentioned Bain Capital co-founder Mitt Romney earlier, but it was the other co-founder, T. Coleman Andrews, who asked Jeff to believe in them and their vision. He asked me if I wanted to join him at Bain Capital and move back to Boston. So I took all of about five minutes to think about it. And and without even asking him what the salary or the compensation was, I accepted and Figured I'd better accept before he could change his mind, or before uh, you know, Mitt met me and Mitt could you know change his mind. So I'd learned in contract law that if somebody makes you an offer and you accept the offer, there's a binding contract. So I wanted to make sure I had a binding contract because I, I figured the opportunity to get in on the ground floor at Bank Capital was going to be a pretty good deal. Yeah, I'd say. And what a great story. Great job, Joey. And we love these first job stories. And by the way, Beach Haven, I had a beach house there for about a decade with a bunch of pals from college. And then one day we found out that we were married and this was getting silly. But what a great place to spend some time. And I was just thinking, maybe I played on that miniature golf course once. Who knows? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is our final thought segment. And we'll be using this Brian Eno music each time. It's a story about someone who's recently passed, a eulogy. And by the way, this music, called An Ending or Ascent, you can hear this at the World War II Museum in the Road to Tokyo exhibit, in the final exhibit. And that's when we get to see the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. We actually understand why, after walking through that exhibit, why our men had to do that. And as the mushroom cloud rises, this music composed specifically for that museum by Eno, a great composer, comes up. And not a dry eye leaves that exhibit. Do go to New Orleans when you get a chance, the World War II Museum. And now we're going to bring you this week's final thoughts. And the feature is a eulogy delivered by Deal Hudson for his sister Ruth Ann, who had recently passed at 69 years of age and was survived by their mother. Let's take a listen. I think our families have met before. I think at weddings, Jennifer and Celie's. Isn't it wonderful we all look the same? I didn't really come with any prepared remarks, except to say to all of you who are here, thank you. Thank you for being here. It is an honor that you're showing to my sister and to our entire family who joined me in saying thank you. Instead of a eulogy, I would rather read you a letter from my sister Ruth, whose words will mean so much more to you than anything I can say, and more to me. Here's her letter. Dear brother, when I asked you to give a eulogy at my funeral, I knew you would find the right words to say. After all, you were always so good at talking yourself out of any kind of trouble. Well, most trouble. But I knew you would first look at our mother's face, Emmy, and you would say, I love you, Mom. I loved you when I was with you, and I love you now from where I am now. I love you even more because I am now standing close to love himself. The one whose very being is love. Nothing else. And here I'm perfectly happy. No longer struggling for breath because the very breath of life has been breathed into me once again. I am reborn. You always said a mother should never live to see her child die. I understand why you said that. You said that because I would have been crushed myself if Jennifer or Celie 
had passed before me. But now, where I am, I have the advantage of telling you, try not to grieve too much or too long. Because I'm not really gone from you. With the eyes of faith, you can see me clearly as I can see you and pray for you, all of you, without ceasing. Life here is kind of like an endless prayer for those we love and even those we don't know. When we meet again, you will understand why I have written this letter to you, for you to hear and to believe. Brother, I know how much you hate talking about yourself, which is one of the reasons I decided to write you so that you wouldn't have to struggle for the words to describe how much you'll miss me and so forth. Rather than that, I would like to tell you, like you to tell everyone, how I always asked you to sing the impossible dream whenever we were together. To right the unrightable wrong To be better far than you are To try when your arms are too weary This kind of family tradition going back to high school days. I have to tell you, brother, it wasn't because you have such a great voice. No, what I loved was the deal you became when you were singing. How you showed your heart. How you came out from hot behind your mind. And all those books you are always reading. When you sang to me, I felt you open and give me the brotherly love you sometimes felt it difficult to give. And to your credit, you never, not even once, refused to sing. Please, please, brother, keep singing. Be that man. She writes... I always found it hard to say goodbye to my friends. They will remember how I always begged them to stay with me a little longer. Please tell them, and I wish I could speak to each of them by name. Please tell them how they enriched my life beyond measure. In fact, their friendship coupled with my family's love surely extended my life by many years. It was knowing all of you were there, as you are now, the pull of your love that pulled me into the future. Enjoying years I might not have had otherwise. To them say thank you for my life, for the fullness of that life and those years they gave me. Just as I found it hard to say goodbye, it's hard to bring this letter to an end. 
the last letter I will ever write. Though it's my last letter, not my last thought, word, or prayer. Those will cross that invisible line between eternity and time and descend as a blessing upon all of you. When I lived among you like everyone, I had my doubts. Here, there are no doubts. Here we see face to face. I know that my prayers will help fill the void you feel and lessen the pain. Truly, your prayers and mine have already met. Met at that invisible line where everything turns into glory. Ruth. To dream the impossible dream to find the unbeatable foe to bear with unbearable sorrow. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Final thoughts. Deal Hudson, his late sister Ruth Ann. Love the part where he said, When we sing, when we sang to me, you gave me the brotherly love you found difficult to otherwise give. That reminded me of Aquinas who always said, When we sing, we pray twice. Please, brother, she said, keep singing. Be that man. This is Lee Habib. Final thoughts. Our American stories. More after this. This is my quest to follow that star. No matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to be willing to This is Our American Stories, and we're back with one of our favorite topics, Random Acts of Kindness. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's a great resource, an inspiring one to share with your kids, your friends, and make sure to leave your story there. And that's what we hope to do here is you hear some good ones, populate theirs. Here's a story from Vallejo, California in the San Francisco Bay Area where an unexpected act of kindness has made this teen's commute a heck of a lot easier. This teen had just finished his shift at night in Benicia when an officer spotted him walking home. He says he thought he was in trouble first when the officer stopped him, but then they started talking. I've been walking far distances since I was about 10. 18-year-old Jordan Duncan has been walking to work since May after his car broke down, and he won't ask for rides. I don't want to feel like I'm a burden to people, so I take the initiative to handle myself 
and my own ways to where I need to go from point A to point B. Duncan lives in Vallejo and works in Benicia. It's about a two-hour commute each way on foot, up and down hills, through city streets to avoid the highway. Four hours all together. I got used to the walking. You know, it's not hard to walk. It just happened to be uh, going down industrial when I saw him walking. Benicia Police Corporal Kirk Keffer stopped Duncan last Saturday. He said, so you walk from work to Vallejo? I was like, you know, if I have no other way. At that point, I was like, well, once you jump in, I'll give you a ride home. The two got to know each other. Keffer talked about life as an officer, and Duncan shared his aspirations to be an officer with the CHP. Keffer was so impressed with the team's work ethic, he and the members of the Benicia Police Officers Association surprised Duncan at work on Monday with a new mountain bike. There's not a lot of... Uh... 18-year-olds out there that have this dedication, this work ethic, and we just wanted to make sure that he knew that how much I actually appreciated what he's doing. Duncan was shocked. You know, not all officers are bad. He's quickly learned how to handle the bike, and it cuts his travel time in half. This bike is my best friend, my best friend right here. I love this bike. Duncan is extremely grateful, and after hearing about his desire to be an officer, we're heard, we've learned that the Benicia Police Department is working to give him a ride-along in the coming weeks. And as he said, not all cops are bad. And again, you're not going to see that in the national news. Maybe a nice little local feature. But never, ever in the national news. And never eight minutes or ten minutes or twenty minutes, let alone two weeks of coverage. And again, we talk often here about law enforcement and the outliers and the bad cops, because there are plenty, but not nearly as many as the media would have you think. And I would bet it's less than 1% or even less than that. And now we move to Pensacola, Florida, where a Marine was honored for helping a fellow triathlete. The service our country's Marines provide on and off the battlefield isn't done for the recognition. But 19-year-old Marine Private First Class Matthew Morgan was recognized for the compassion he showed a young triathlete who lost his leg to cancer. This is what being a Marine is about. And I'm really glad that, you know, if I do anything, I, I get to help show that. Since losing his leg to bone cancer, 11-year-old Ben Baltz has been running triathlons and other athletic competitions throughout northwest Florida. On October 7th, Baltz was running in the Sea Turtle Tri-Kids Triathlon. He was halfway through the run portion when his prosthetic leg failed and he fell. Morgan and another Marine were volunteering at a water stand nearby and ran to help. I just got there first. When I got there, he'd already, you know, thrown himself up and was continuing to try and fix his prosthetic. And I asked him, do you need help? And he looked at me and he said, no, I'm going to finish. But Morgan says Baltz couldn't get his prosthesis back on. He knew he wasn't going to be able to reattach it because he was missing a screw. And I got in front of him and I said, you know, pop on. For the last half of the event, Morgan carried Baltz on his back, trekking across beach sand and then crossing the finish line. As fellow Marines watched, Congressman Jeff Miller presented Morgan with a medal for his achievement. Despite his act of kindness, PFC Morgan says he doesn't consider himself a hero. He was just simply doing what any other Marine would do. I was just the first Marine there. Every, every Marine says they would have done the exact same thing. Ben's story is a perfect inspiration to Marines, to everyone for that matter, and, and how he perseveres and continues on even when you know not everything goes his way. 
Boy, I'd love to get both of those guys on the air, by the way. That's just such a good story. I'd want to go longer with it. Fantastic. Next up, a teen from Salisbury Township, Pennsylvania, arrives to his first day of high school in style. A fleet of more than 16 bikers escorted Sean Mayer on the way to his first day of class. Sean has Down syndrome and has been bullied at school. So this year, a local motorcycle club picked the teen up at his house at 6 a.m. to show their support. Sean rode on the back of a bike wearing a helmet and vest and arrived at school ready to tackle the day. Just before he walked into the building, Sean high-fived his friends who all clearly have his back. About 100 bikers were in attendance. It's unbelievable the hearts that, that you guys and gals have to come out here and it really truly shows what the community's all about. And last but not least, a complete stranger in Victorville, California, displays jaw-dropping generosity. 86-year-old Dale Stoner is going to change the life of eight complete strangers by paying for their full college tuition. He surprised the first two students, Ronaldo Lopez and Tenancy Vargas, with the news. This makes me feel really great inside. I was so shocked at the moment that I just started crying. With all of Dale's own kids grown, he worked hard all his life, and a large portion of his money was earned from real estate. He wanted to help others. To me, it's it's all very simple. The money is there. Uh, There's no need on my side of my my kids. And uh, so I just said, well. Dale and his wife didn't know how to pick the students, so they looked in the phone book to discover a high school. I talked to our counseling office and our two counselors and our leadership team, and they pulled two names, and they said, these two kids are deserving. Now these two students are heading to college, only focusing on their education. Dale hopes others will pay it forward after hearing about his kind gesture. I want him to see me graduate so that he knows like he didn't do this just for nothing. You bet. That kid's going to graduate, that's for sure. And one last story, and it's just personal. One of the guys who helped build our beautiful studio here, JJ, a great craftsman, really great worker with his hands. He's had some tough times. His his wife left. She had drug problems. He's trying to raise a child by himself. And he was working for a fellow who just wasn't paying him. He's holding back his taxes. Just he worked for a bad employer. And so he finally extricates himself from that situation. And then his truck breaks down. And a worker who works with his hands without a truck My goodness, that's a tough situation. And he's sitting down on the porch with a friend of his who's hit some good times. He's a developer and he's made some money. And he's telling his friend about the truck and this and that. Next day, his buddy comes up to him, throws him some car keys to a white, brand new Ford F-150. And he says, take this. And J.J. goes, well, thanks. You know, it's about a week. I'll have the other car fixed. He goes, no, you don't understand. Take this. It's yours. You're a good guy. Take care. And he just walks out. And JJ just, he calls me up crying. And he said, man, people are just so generous. And they are. And this happens all the time, folks. So when folks are trying to tell you there's no good in the world, there's no God in the world, there's no love in the world, well, turn off the channel. Turn off that person. Find new people. Find new friends. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. In last segment, we heard the first portion of Beverly Willett's latest Beginning Again feature. And again, to catch our first, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Listen to Beverly's, because it's quite a story. And this brings us to the story of a young lady named Amanda. Again, she didn't want to give her last name, and now we're beginning to understand why. And my goodness, so many lives like this. We learned a little bit during our National Adoption Month. We spent some time on foster stories. And, oh my goodness. Whose parents divorced when she was a little girl. She was then sexually assaulted by her grandfather at five years old. At one point, she lived in her dad's car then went from one foster care placement to another, and at 16 years old was emancipated and thrown into the streets alone, where she found love in all the wrong places, in boys and drugs, ended up in prison, which she just told us she didn't want to leave because she didn't want to go out into the streets and die. That's the rock bottom of a life, folks, the rock bottom feeling it took to bring Amanda back to life. Let's now continue with Beverly Willett's Beginning Again feature with Amanda. I've heard people talk about like this kind of aha moment when 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 all of this stuff kind of like comes to the forefront of our head and we and we we suddenly have that moment. Um, did you feel that these because because I, I know that I have um, before I uh, uh, spoke with you I had spoken to uh, someone in the jail and and we don't want to get into names here you're entitled to your privacy but this particular law enforcement officer. Um, is the one that told me about your story, and he just spoke about you in such glowing terms. And as one of the people, you know, that he put right up there as, <laughs> this is a woman who's really gone through things that most of us can't even begin to imagine and turned her life around. And we saw her wanting the help. And at that moment, I guess, you know, you were reaching out, and they saw you reaching out, and, and something happened in that moment to bring, to bring you both together. Yeah. Uh, I guess you can call it an aha moment, or, <laughs> or God was reaching down on me and smacking me in the back of the head, and it's like, it's time. It's time to wake up, because um, I've, I just, I begged. I really did. I begged. Please don't want I'll stay here longer. I don't care what you do to me. Just don't don't let me go. So what and happened? They, they didn't let me go. They put me they paid the jail paid for me to go to a drug treatment facility, a women's residential. Um, within that women's residential, I learned how to live. I learned how to love myself. Um, a lot of people say that that it's a you're born addicted. To me, my personal experience, I was born addicted to love. I searched so hard for that love that I did not care where it took me. I really didn't. And in that women's residential, I learned in order to get that love and to love, you have got to love yourself. And I met my husband over there where I was at in in the city where I was living in. And 
now I'm married and I have a beautiful daughter. And in my addiction, I had other kids. And I now communicate with my 16-year-old daughter. And I'm very grateful, grateful for the life, grateful for for that aha moment. Without that moment, I don't think I'd be here. And wow, what words. I learned how to live. I learned how to love myself. And when she said, I was born addicted to love, I searched so hard, I didn't care where it took me, that search. So let's rejoin Beverly in this final portion of her Beginning Again feature. And again, here's Amanda. There's something interesting when, I, when I've talked with you, and that, you know, I think you have plenty of things that in your life you could blame other people for because you got off to a real rocky start. You got off to such a rocky start that most of us can't ever imagine and, and, and don't go through. And, you know, it's almost like who could blame you? My gosh, nobody can blame you for, for this. But to not come out of it feeling resentful, I've never felt that from you. I've never felt an edge of resentfulness. Um, how is that possible? I'm not really sure. And <laughs> I, I, I don't know where it comes from, but I will tell you that I have a good relationship with my real mother. And, wow. I ha- and I have a relationship with my father. My father and I aren't on the best of terms, but I love him, and I go and see them once a year, and I take my daughter with me. Um, I honestly think that seeing how my husband's family is has helped me to forgive, because they love me no matter what. And... And it's, they're awesome. And I, without them, I don't think I would be able to have the relationship I do with my mom. And I don't think I'd be able to have even a little bit of a relationship with my dad. And before my grandfather, who sexually assaulted me, passed away, I didn't forgive him face to face, but I did it, you know, with my higher power. And I went and seen my grandfather before she passed away, and I took my daughter to go see her. So it took, it takes a lot, but I can't blame anybody else. All I can do is fix me, and that's all I did. I didn't worry about them because if I didn't forgive them, I would not be where I'm at because I would have been filled with so much hatred. But just, it was hard but my husband's family has really helped me a whole lot. A final note here. Um, I know that you are, you are also, in addition to being a, um, a wife, a mom, and reuniting with your family, you are also an aspiring baker. Yes. <laughs> so what's it, tell us your favorite recipe. My favorite recipe? Um, I just recently at my job 
did the most beautiful coconut cake, and I've never done one. It's like a four-layered coconut cake. <laughs> um, it was it was awesome, and the the baking makes me feel I get out of myself. I'm able to use my hands and make something beautiful out of nothing. <laughs> Well, thank you, Amanda. And you had no idea that coconut cake is my absolute favorite. I'm telling you the (laughs) truth. (laughs) Thank you for being with us today and sharing your amazing Beginning Again story. No problem. Thank you. And joining us now live on the line is Beverly Willett. And Beverly, thanks so much for that story. It was just terrific. Oh, I just loved hearing it again because I just get a smile on my face just listening to her laugh. It makes me so happy. And that forgiveness, the power of forgiveness, my goodness. We're going to be doing a a half hour on Louis Zamperini soon. Uh, And my goodness, there's a life where forgiveness made everything possible. You know, you guys have such, you you ladies have such different backgrounds, but yet you suffered tremendous loss and grief, as different as you were. Did you feel some similarities there, Beverly, as well? I mean, I did just, just, just talking with her, you know, I, I feel like we know each other, and I feel a real closeness just talking to her. But, you know, these beginning and again stories, I, I mean, I think the, the one thing that unifies them all is that none of us in our lives is immune to hardship and tragedy. And I think when we can find those, we can realize that, we can find a common bond that helps us to uh, heal each other it helps us to emphasize, empathize with each other. And, you know, just obviously our, our stories were completely different, but we both had these, these aha moments, I guess, as, as Amanda said, where they were sort of turning points in our life when we realized that we wanted our futures to be different and that we did not want to continue to hold on to the suffering that was was holding this beautiful life that we could both have back. So I think that was a that was a similarity, despite the fact that, you know, I had plenty of advantages that Amanda never had. Yep. You so, st- I, I, so I think there were similarities. Yeah, there were, and, you, and that's the point of this. I think in the end, Beverly, and we look forward to the next beginning again feature. Thanks for this. Thanks for this work on Amanda, and uh, soon enough we'll have you back on the air again. Beverly Willett, and the subject Thankfully. the subject is beginning again. Thank you, Amanda, for joining us. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And please, if you have stories of your own, don't hesitate to give us a call at 844-627-8255. Leave your name. Leave your number. We'll take care of turning it into a story. Just get in touch with us. More after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to be talking to songwriter and singer John Paul White, a real talent. And you're listening to the song Poison and Wine, which propelled the Civil Wars. He was a lead singer. It was a duo, actually. And this song propelled them to the top of the charts and to Grammy territory. Let's take a listen. joined by John Paul White and we're joined because his new album Beulah is in record stores everywhere. We always start off all of our interviews real simply uh, and that is where were you born and who are your parents and how did both of those things impact who you are and what you're doing today? I was born uh, in Tuscumbia, Alabama at uh, Helen Keller Hospital. I was not Helen Keller Hospital at the time. It was Colbert County Hospital, but it, it changed names later. And, and yes, that Helen Keller. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, Ivy Green is just down the street where she learned how to say, how to sign water. You can still go there today. Uh, I was born to Mac and Mary White. And they actually grew up on the Tennessee state line on the on the Tennessee side. So we were living down there when I was born, and before I started school, they moved up to the Tennessee state line back to where their roots were, which was about 20 miles north of the Shoals. And I you know, lived there until after high school and moved back to the Shoals at that point. But my dad was a, uh, a farmer, a chicken farmer, and my mom was a, uh, a laborer on that farm. You know, she, she probably, you know, Worked as hard as any woman I, I ever met, and uh, so my formative years were all out there on thirty acres, taking care of poultry and and living out in the middle of nowhere um, in rural Tennessee. And it was a it was a pretty blissful existence. You know, we um, my dad had worked for Ford Motor Company in the Shoals. And then it shut down and put a whole lot of people out of work. And so we subsisted solely on that farm for quite a while until he found work again. And uh, you couldn't have told us any any different, that, that life was any different for anybody else because we were miles from the next family, went to a little small church-run um, private school, um, and everybody else was in the exact same boat as we were, so it was there was never any sort of class or social status. You know, we were all just all struggling equally, and um, um, it was a it was a really good really good childhood, to be honest. Yep, and uh, it's something I experienced. I grew up, uh, John, in the New York area, but on my first uh, tour with my dad, my dad and I would drive around the country. Uh, together alone and and spend some time visiting Civil War sites and battlefields. But that wasn't what we were really doing. We were going out and seeing our country. And uh, something struck me about the way people in the South, and particularly the rural South, lived. And it had nothing to do, John, with the picture I had in my head from the movies I saw. 
and the imagery I saw, particularly how white and black people live together, uh, particularly how how just kind and, and warm uh, Southern people were. And I think so much of the simple nature of their lives, and I don't mean that they're, they were simple people, but that the lives yeah. were sort of stripped down and life became actually quite pleasant for, for so many people. Uh, talk about Talk about that. And you've been around the block. So you're a guy who grew up like that, but has also been around big cities, could live anywhere you want to live in the world. And where do you live now? I, I live right there in Florence, Alabama, right there where I was born. And I have no intentions of going anywhere else. I mean, I'm able to, you know, take care of my wanderlust by doing the touring thing. I get to visit lots of great cities and eat lots of great food and meet lots of great people. But you know, every single experience cements my belief that, you know, the Shoals, the Tennessee Valley is where I was always meant to be and where I meant to stay. And, you know, I've got small kids and, and a beautiful wife, and I'm gone a lot. And so it makes a lot more sense for, for them to have a, a support network close by, a lot of family close by low crime rate and you know cost of living is low and, yep. and just uh it's it's a really good existence but you know you you made a you made a good point about how you know things really were just boiled down to their very simplest uh structure growing up in the south when i did uh you know pre-cable pre-internet pre-cell phones pre-all that stuff and i'm you know I'll be one of those old fuddy-duddies that, uh, you know, miss the old days. I, I wish my kids could grow up in that existence. And, and you know, we we try to keep that sort of mentality going in our house. We try to, to not be too connected and, to, and be aware of the world within your reach uh, and not – I think, you know, I think both worlds can, can coexist if you – you know, if you do it judiciously, but, um, it's, uh, I, I miss, I miss those days of, of having so much less distractions and having more laser focus on what was going on right in front of you. And when we come back more from John Paul White, his new record, Beulah, go to Amazon and get it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. I... Water, drink it down till it's gone. I saw her drink it down till it's gone. Oh, well, it's always second time around. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to John Paul White's What So, a terrific new song on his new album, Beulah. John Paul's recording his first solo record in many years, and it's great. Oh, in the road, sun 
ancestors had Wear on your sleeve the virtues you lack But don't get above your race And now we're rejoined by John Paul White, and we love talking about location. You draw a line around Memphis and go out 300 miles, John, and, and it's almost all of American music. It's crazy. Yeah. What is it about the soil? That's definitely true. What is it about the soil? Uh, what do you think? Have you thought about it? Have you yeah, pondered it? I, I have a bit. You know, I, I'm, I'm asked that question, obviously, being from one of those centers. Uh, uh, I am definitely asked that question. What's in the water? What's the deal? What, why, why is there so many people? And even to this day, you know, with, uh, you know, Gary Nichols of Steel Drivers and Jason Isbell and Alabama Shakes and Anderson East and, you know, Dylan LeBlanc, there's so many, so many artists doing it and doing it well. Um, I think, you know, some of us nowadays are standing on the shoulders of the guys that came before us. Mm -hmm. and we'd be perfectly fine with saying that, but obviously, how did they make it happen? How did that come about? I think... You know, Spooner Oldham and I have talked about this. Spooner is a legendary session player from yep. back in the day and till today. He still plays on sessions for us at Single Lock Records, our little label back home. And he, he, you know, he he demystifies it. He doesn't think that there's anything in the water. You know, he, he kind of shrugs when people say that. But, yep. And I guess I do too. Um, I'd love to be a romantic about it and say there's something spiritual there and that it's in the water and that feels good. And who, you know, who could say, but I will say that, you know, my take has always been that, and this is obviously not exclusive to the South or to the Shoals, but for whatever reason, there was this perfect alignment of poverty, you know, a little bit of ignorance and not, not in a, you know, non-intelligent kind of way but you know people like rick hall that came along and had had nothing but had all the drive in the world and could not be told you can't start a studio in the middle of nowhere you can't cut hits in the middle of nowhere you can't have a record label in the middle of nowhere and he had just enough cojones to tell people you know just watch me yep. watch me do this yep. and he was smart enough to sense great talent around him when he saw it and exploit the heck out of it. And he'd be the first to tell you. And the thing that really put us on the map um, was when people like Jerry Wexler at Atlantic uh, up in New York yep. took a took a notion. When he saw, and, uh, you know, Rick deserves the credit for cutting, you know, you know, you better move on and, and, and things like that, Jimmy Hughes and Steal Away and stuff like that. Yep. But he got Jerry's ear, and then Jerry started sending Wilson and Aretha and Clarence Carter and all this stuff started coming down. You know, there should be a huge statue to, to Wexler in my town. And, you know, one of these days there will be because he's still revered by all those guys. But you take that, you take some of the stack stuff coming over, you take some of the Motown stuff coming down, you know, and then it just exploded. But it was a bunch of a bunch of funky white dudes that didn't know any better that they couldn't do it. Yep. They just said, "Well, why can't we? Yep. Let's just let's just tackle it and see what happens." Yeah, and, the kind uh, of ignorance that almost borders on innocence, in, in a sense. Yeah. I, I didn't yeah, know. I couldn't is not know. A better word, but but that's definitely the truth. But 
all of those guys came from the same walk of life, and none of them had any money. None of them had any prospect for any money. None of them had any training. Any, yep. you know, they were not skilled musicians. They just played what they felt. They played what they saw at the local club. They played what they heard on old, you know, on Otis Redding records or or even earlier records than that, and just made it up as they went. Yeah, and you know, Jerry Wexler, I think what's most interesting about him, and here's a here's a Jewish record producer from the biggest, the most powerful music city in the country, I would guess at the time. Uh, L.A. had not yet uh, sort of metastasized as another center of yeah. uh, of music, and Nashville still wasn't quite, it, it had one idiom, it had country, but here's sure. New York City. And Jerry Wexler did not suffer from what lots of people suffered from at the time, which I believe was re- regional bigotry. That is that a lot of yeah. Americans have a vision of the South that nothing good could come from there, and that this man had the vision to say, wow, these swampers, listen to this. What is this? I'm curious. And he had that curiosity well, and innocence himself, I think, John. He, he I, I couldn't agree with you more. And his mentality, his personality, and the way that he looked at music and the world around him matched up perfectly with the guys in the shows because people like Rick and David Hood and Jimmy Johnson you know, they, it can't be overstated, you know, the the racial equality that is depicted in that in that film. Yep. Because it wasn't because, I won't even pretend that it was because these guys were better people right. than anyone else in the South or anyone else in the world. They were very practical, you know, guys, and they were like, who's the best drummer? Yep. I don't care what the color of the skin is. Who's the best drummer and is going to help me cut a hit? Well, then you're the drummer. Who's the best singer? Well, then you're the singer. There was absolutely no qualms at all about um, ethnicity. And and Jerry, I think Jerry looked at the world the same way. It was like, where's the next hit? Yeah. Where's the next big thing? What's what's going to move me? And he wasn't afraid to go to it. He didn't have to have it come to him. And uh, it, was a, it was a perfect marriage, man. Yeah. Uh, as I said, he, he is... He, he probably was the catalyst. Let's talk about you and your and your music. Uh, I think folks know you from uh, the Civil Wars and a Grammy Award winning uh, uh, a group, uh, a, a duet, a writing powerhouse that you know. I, I you know when I first heard Poison and Wine, my wife had sent it to me and she was crying when she heard it, John. And I and I, I give you and pay you the highest tribute because I think if you can make someone cry, um, it's uh, it's and I think we all need to cry regularly. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And, uh, well, talk about, talk about what that what it was like, Ada, to be in a, in a group like that. And then ultimately you're now making your first solo record in eight years. Um, talk about mm-hmm. the civil wars, that success, and then that journey to, to being that solo artist you are now. Sure. Well, I won't even pretend that I had any clue whatsoever that uh, the Civil Wars would be as successful as it was. And to be honest, you know, you, you mentioned it's been eight years since I made a solo record. Once I made that solo record, it was for Capitol Records, and about the time I was mixing that record, the label uh, imploded. They merged Capitol with Virgin, and uh, the head of Virgin became the head of uh, all of it, so all the Virgin acts um they survived, and all the capital acts that didn't have their record already out, um, we got cut. So I was in a really bitter place at that time. And so when when the Civil Wars happened, 
I had a completely different mentality than I had any of the years prior, whereas I was just making music to please myself. Uh, I'd done it the other way around. I had tried to play the game and and just came out of it really bitter and decided I'm, I'm only going to make music that makes me happy because at the end of the day, it is a crapshoot whether anybody else is going to connect with this. You yep. know, I, I can't I can't control that at all. All I know is whether I like it. And if I stick to that criteria, I've got to hope that there's a lot of other people out there in the world that like the same things that I do. Yep. And that's I fearlessly, selfishly started making music that way once I met Joy and, and we started the Civil Wars. And so um, I won't even pretend that I saw that connection happen so fast with fans, with uh, with the public at large. And it kept stair-stepping so quickly and um, escalating so fast. And it was... It was a whirlwind. It was, and it's kind of hard to remember a lot of it because it was. Uh, I had blinders on. Just okay. Tell me where I need to be at this moment, and I will give you all I've got at this moment. And then tell me where I need to be right after that. And and it was. Um, at times, it was a. It was a. There was bliss to it, you know, that I could just focus on making music. But I, it was also very, you know overwhelming and you know there's lots of things that were just sliding right past that I, uh, I just had to trust other people to deal with and and so I wasn't super hands-on after a certain amount of time because it was just literally impossible we were uh, basically the record label uh, the entire time so all the responsibility was in our laps so I just worked as, as much and as often as humanly possible and this is Lee Habib. We're talking to John Paul White and his new album, Beulah. It's available everywhere. Go to Amazon, buy it. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to dig into the record, more about John Paul White's life. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking to John Paul White, singer, songwriter, and at one point, uh, the Grammy Award winner with the Civil Wars. And it's a tough journey to go from that and going back to that solo career, but it's something that John Paul White was dedicated and determined to do. Uh, it was an artistic choice that he decided to make. John, let's carry on with that idea of moving from this very successful duo, but you wanting to just, well, do something else. I learned a lot during that process where, you know, again, getting back to what we were talking about, about what really is important and what, what is not, and what is, what is something that I'm willing to fight for and, and strive for and what, you know, really isn't a priority for me anymore. And so, I've gotten to do a lot of things that I wanted to do, a lot of bucket list items. And I'm at a place now that my one and only priority is, you know, being happy. And being happy 
is making music that I really dearly love, going and playing it for people, which I did not realize would be something that made me happy again because I was so burnt out from so much touring. Yep. But I'm thoroughly enjoying myself playing these songs for people. And making sure I don't go too much, make sure I don't leave too often, making sure that my first and, you know, that my main priority is uh, my family and my well-being and my health and and my future. Well, and I sense this in, in, in the new record, Beulah, and I want to talk about that word, John, because it means a lot of things to a lot of people. I mean, I looked it up, yes. and, and my goodness, and I love a word like that. And I think your writing is very much like that. One of the things I promise I will not ask you during this interview is what does a song mean? It's the worst thing to ask a writer, and I, I, would never, I wouldn't do that to you. It's whatever we, we think it should mean. And I, my Amen. sister's a writer, and what do you think it means? I think is the only answer that matters. Uh, what does the yeah. audience think it means? But you, you pick uh, these subjects to write about that have this sort of, they're not on the nose, and they, they give space for people to lean into the song, and yet there's a structure there. But the word Beulah... Why that word? Beulah is, uh, it has many different levels of meaning for me. Um, the first, uh, the primary reason that word is even a part of my lexicon is because of my family. My dad used to call my little sister that as a term of endearment. Um, I call my daughter that. I call my wife that. It's, it's a word that's always been around in that kind of context. And it's also, you know, my, my, my mom's Catholic, but my dad was, uh, you know, Southern Baptist. And, you know, the, the gospel songbook was a big part of their lives. And, and songs about Beulah Land were common. Yep. Uh, because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a biblical term, although I think it's only mentioned once in the Bible, but it's, a, it's definitely a common, common word in the South uh, yep. in gospel songs. Um. But for me, the larger uh, meaning of it comes from a guy named William Blake. And um, I don't pretend to be the most, uh, most well-read, intelligent guy, but, uh, and, and especially in the world of philosophy. But he's a guy that I dig you know, a lot of what he's written. And I read you know, Milton back in high school, and it kind yep. of stuck with me. But he, um, he has his own little mythology for... Uh, the way the world works. And, and his phrase, he used the term Beulah for a place that you could go to, either through meditation or, you know, whatever. You could go there and you could center, you could heal, get it together, you know, and, and, and escape from the world until you um, straighten out all the things that need to be straightened out. And you couldn't stay there. You know, it was a, it was a temporary um uh, harbor, yep. but when you came back to the world, you came back a little bit more whole, a little bit more prioritized, and and uh, you know I felt like there's there's no better no better word that sums up this record. Well, that's wonderful. Let's talk about uh, a, a couple of the songs. Let's talk about what's so um, because I just mm. I watched it up on Rolling Stone's website and and listened to it. And sometimes I get distracted when I watch a video because it has nothing to do with the song or it gets in the way of the song. I love the way you did Amen. the video. I love the way you shot it. It was just simple. It served the song. It didn't get in the Thank way you. of the song. And let's take a listen. Road, sun on your back, shoulder 
Talk about uh, some of the things you're getting at in that song, because I've always been around now in my life, folks who are really aware of their station in life and mm. and talk about that and talk about uh, folks who uh, are in these spaces, love these spaces, because I think you're writing about in some respects some of those things. And it's also it feels like just a look back. Um, talk about the song. You know, we've we've kind of touched on some of those thoughts earlier with, you know, being from being from um, Loretta, Tennessee community, which is mostly farmers, and carpenters, you know, tradesmen, you know, a lot of blue collar, if if even that. And, you know, we we all had a common bond in that we all really didn't have a lot. And the only people that really got ostracized, that got pushed around, were the kids that had it all. The kids that came in with the new toys and the new clothes and and the new TV, and they had a TV in their room or anything like that. If, they, if they, anybody ever brought that stuff up, they got bullied. They got you know completely ignored because it was you know it was the opposite way that it probably is more so nowadays. And so materialism. We would have loved to have had all that stuff. I mean, it's not because we were better kids, but it's just like that was not an option. So, you know, raising, elevating your stature um, relative to the, to the people around you, um, that was always frowned upon. And I remember that um, heavily. Uh, my dad saying, you know, don't put on airs. Yeah. You know, don't get above your raising. Don't. You know, who's this guy think he is? You know, I know him. He, right. he picked cotton right alongside me his whole childhood. Why does he think he's better than us, you know, just because he went to college? You know, I, I heard all those conversations, and I, I took it to heart. Yep. Whether it's the way it should be or it shouldn't be, it's a big part of my childhood, and it's a big part of growing up as a as a male in the South, is that we're all working the same row, and... Uh, some of us are a little more successful than others, but that doesn't make you any different as a human being. Yeah, I always tell and people. So, I always tell people, so what? You're a little more successful. Yeah. So what? Now what? Yeah, I, I I battle with it a lot. You know, with with varying successes that I've had in life, it's always been with an all shucks kind of mentality. You know, even to the point of you know frustrating people. Like, why don't you just accept? The, you know, the good things that have happened for you and, and be proud of those. And, and I do in my own way, but there's always just a little tinge of, of uh, I don't know, a little bit of that Catholic guilt seeps in there or something like, why are these things happening for me? Because I know people more talented. I know people that work harder. I know people that are more deserving. Right. And so I always, everything is with a grain of salt. And I think I needed to write that song to express that, not to, not only to articulate it for myself, but to people around me and people from my hometown that, you know, I'm still that same guy. Yeah. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. John Paul White for the hour, his new record, Bueller. Pick it up at Amazon.com. And what's
just for a moment or two. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We've been talking to John Paul White for the hour, and we love talking to artists and talking about artists. John Paul White, Make You Cry. Uh, talk about that song. Well, it's, you know, I, as you said earlier, I'm not very good with uh, meanings of songs because sometimes I know what they're about, sometimes I don't. But most often, um, my old mentor, his name was Walt Aldridge, and uh, he's written some two or three songs of the year in the country world back in the day and, and a brilliant songwriter. And I remember writing songs for him. And he would tell me, he said, don't, don't put a don't put a ring in the in the song and what he meant was he explained that you put a wedding ring on anybody's finger in the song you have just completely left a lot of the population out of the song they can't live inside it they can't live vicariously through it and yep. become a character because they're not married and right. so they don't have that point of view and it, i really took that to heart so i've always tried to make sure that songs had a little gray, a little vague uh, quality to it so that anybody can step inside it. So that's, you know, a, a lot of what I do that happens. And so it, what I think it's about is not anything like what other people think it's about. And a lot of times what they think it's about <laughs> much better. Right. And I just like to take credit for that. But um, with that song, it's, you know, it's one of those, one of those things that one of those universal things that, we all want to be missed. We all want to be cared about, whether whatever the situation is that um, has two people be apart, you know, whether you wanted it, whether they wanted it, whatever, you still want there to be a little pang there. You still want there to be a little twist of the knife, no matter what. Yep. And so I feel like I'm always trying to touch on universal truths things that that affect everyone and, and I still feel like those things are still out there that has haven't been written about and I really wanted to dig into that self-loathing that that self reverence of you know yeah I don't I I still need to be needed yep and it's a universal cry, ultimately. And, uh, and, and I would, I would think so. Yeah, and 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 I want to talk about one other song. It, it's not on the record, but it, it's my wife's favorite song from a from a uh, series uh, called Nashville, which um, has terrific writing in it. And Buddy Miller's sitting there, and you know you've got T Bone Burnett being the musical director. And when I saw those names, I said, whether I like the plot, whether I like the acting, I got to watch this series just so I can hear the songwriting. And no one will ever love you. And by the way, when you performed it, I did not know you had written that song. And I wish you'd record oh. it because, my goodness, I love Connie Britton and I love the, the, the team that sang it. But my goodness, John, you, you kill that song. Well, thank you very much, man. I appreciate that. Um, uh, that one has, that song has been around for a while. I wrote that with uh, Steve McEwen, who is a guy that, uh, from London. And uh, I wrote that with no intention of anything Nashville related actually connecting with it and using it and actually getting it cut. We were just selfishly writing a song that made us both happy. And I have to give credit to T-Bone Burnett for that because when uh, he asked me, he said, I'm, I'm working on this new show. Do you have anything that you're really proud of and happy with that 
hasn't been used that's exclusive and thought, well, here's a chance for me to show T-Bone a song that I'm really proud of, and maybe it will spur further collaboration. So I honestly never imagined that he'd be able to use it in a, in a show about Nashville, Tennessee. But, uh, you know, to his credit, he, he pulled it off, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. Great. And I'll leave you with this because we like to play it. And it's Martin Scorsese, and he's talking about movies. But my, my sister's a writer, and I have so many friends who are musicians. And, and I don't know why, but people would always say, why do you want to do that? That's not real life. And what, what, how silly to want to be a writer and the like. And uh, so I wanted to have you listen to Martin Scorsese uh, talking to folks at the Kennedy Center about what movies were to him and to us, and in the end, what storytelling and art is to all of us. Let's Whenever take- I hear people dismiss movies as fantasy I make a, and make a hard distinction between film and life, I think to myself that it's just a way of avoiding the power of cinema. I mean, of course it's not life. It's the invocation of life. It's an ongoing dialogue with life. Frank Capra um, said, film is a disease. <laughs> He went on, but I, that's enough for now. And, and so it sounds to me like, hey, you've caught the disease. I know songwriters. They're in the end, because of the task at hand, I, I found them to be not dour, but just they're always in a place because they always have this struggle, and it's a, it's a good struggle. And, and yet what I think Scorsese said about art being the invocation of life in an ongoing dialogue, we rely on the writers and, uh, in the end, we Americans and people of the world, for you to help us with that dialogue, and that's a heck of a burden. It, it is that. Um, I, I definitely uh, have realized that when I write things that whether they pertain to my life or to, uh, you know, some sort of obvious, you know, parallel with my life, or if I go straight to, you know, using that word fantasy, if I just pull things completely uh, diametrically opposed to the way that I've always lived, I've realized that if I do it in a way that that is honest and that is heartfelt and that uh, that I'm I am really being mindful of um, portraying all the characters in the in the most true light. I've noticed that the way it connects with other people is it's mind-boggling because, as I said, if I if I keep the edges gray. The stories that people tell me about how this song meant this to me because this happened to me. And when you hear it from that context, you realize, wow, I, I couldn't have written that song if I knew their story. Right. It would have skewed what I did. So I feel like, you know, all of us have, have that that power and that burden to be able to be a voice for other people that could never, you know, articulate what was going on in their lives because they either didn't have that skill set or they just couldn't couldn't put it into words it was too close it was too it would be too maudlin if they were in the middle of it trying to write a song about it so i don't i don't clearly understand why i'm able to do that and any of us as songwriters are able to do that but i try not to to you know i try not to overanalyze it and just let it happen john paul white the record is beulah pick it up on Amazon, maybe even pick it up at an actual store. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch and listen to all of our discussions with so many of the great artists, 
songwriters, actors, and directors that we so love in our country. Yeah. 